Hello, my friends, and welcome to another sermon in our series on the book of Genesis. My name is Dan Forrest, and today we cross the halfway mark on our journey through Genesis. Genesis is 50 chapters long, and today we're looking at chapters 25 and 27. Woohoo! We're crossing the halfway mark. Well, in this sermon, we're going to be examining the dysfunctional family of Isaac and Rebecca. And to get us prepared for that, we're going to watch a clip of the incredibly dysfunctional Bluth family from the television show Arrested Development. Here's a supercut of the funniest lines from the matriarch of the family, Lucille Bluth. Enjoy. Give me that look. I happen to be a more caring mother than most. Where's my bed? I put it in storage. I guess you'll just have to decide which Lucille you want to spend your nights with. I love all my children equally. I don't care for Joe. What? Hi, Mama. It's Linz. Get a job. They don't appreciate it. It's his glasses. They make him look like a lizard. Plus, he's self-conscious. Gee, I wonder why. But you know, he thinks you're completely irresponsible. A stay-in-bed mom. Probably because you don't work and you're lazy. That's why she's been flirting with Job. She's trying to prove that she's closer to my children than I am, but the joke's on her because she doesn't know how little I care for Job. There are certain things that he can't get from his children. If you're going to say pride, Michael, you're wrong. He is proud of his children. Wasn't going to say pride, Mom. I don't have the milk of mother's kindness in me anymore. Yeah. That udder's been dry for a while, though, has Wow, what a great mom. <laughs> Treats all her kids fairly and with love and respect, she's a true role model. When the Bluth family, Lucille clearly has a favorite son, Buster, and she is not ashamed to let the other kids in the family know that they are not her favorites. In your family, did your parents play favorites at all? Were you the favorite child or were one of your siblings? You know, my family was definitely a bit messed up growing up, but I didn't feel like anyone was uh, the favorite child or anything. That was my experience, though. I have no idea what it was like for my siblings. In our story today, the family that we're looking at is highly dysfunctional because both parents are playing favorites with a different kid. So we're going to look now at Genesis 25, verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Rebecca is given this prophecy from God that it's not just twins inside her, but these twins will be the fathers of two different nations. The younger twin will lead the stronger nation and the older will serve the younger. This is flipping the firstborn rules upside down. And this is especially important considering the covenant God had made with Abraham and with Isaac. God promised that through their offspring, a great nation would form. And Rebecca is essentially being told here that the covenant will be passed on to the younger twin and not the older. This is unprecedented. Let's continue. Verse 24. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau, which means red or hairy. 
After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob, which means heel grabber. Real original, I know. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. These boys are very different from each other, and unfortunately, the parents play favorites. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Well, from Jonathan's sermon last week, we saw how Isaac and Rebekah were on the same page in their marriage. But here we see the two are no longer on the same page. Isaac favors Esau and Rebekah favors Jacob. Their decision to play favorites is going to rip this family apart. And our story is going to end in tragedy. No one really wins. Everyone loses something significant. And even though both Isaac and Rebecca are showing us bad parenting 101 right off the bat here, I think I have to agree with Bruce Waltke that Isaac is more at fault here. And here's why. Rebecca has been given this prophecy that Jacob will be the stronger nation. And she's probably shared that prophecy with Isaac. But instead of using his divine senses, Isaac prefers his fleshly senses. The reason that he favors Esau is because he likes the taste of wild game that Esau hunts. This is so selfish and so short-sighted, not considering the important task God has placed on him to lead this holy family. All he cares about is venison steaks. Well, Rebecca, on the other hand, she sees that, jo- that Jacob is being neglected, even though he will be the one who carries on God's covenant. So she favors him. Well, as the twins grow older, Abraham passes away and Isaac and Ishmael bury him with his wife, Sarah. And then we come to this story. Verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Okay, so this is the first thing Jacob tries to acquire from Esau, his birthright. Later, he's going to try and take Esau's blessing. Birthright and blessing both go together for the firstborn son. Birthright is your status as the head of the household and the guarantee that you will receive the blessing before your father passes. When a father dies and his inheritance is divided, the first son is given double the inheritance because he will be the one to protect, provide for, and lead the family. And women had no birthright because they were not allowed to own property and they were dependent on men in this culture, either their husbands or their fathers. But any unmarried woman or widowed women without children would have to depend on the eldest brother after the father's death. That's why he was given a double portion so that he could take care of his own immediate family and also his extended family. Verse 32. Look, I am about to die, Esau said. What good is this birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate, drank, got up, and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Here we see the faults of both brothers. 
Esau is so quick to sell his birthright because he has no vision. He has no long-term plan. He has no faith that God will preserve him. And he swears an oath to Jacob, demonstrating that Esau truly despises his birthright. He doesn't take his position seriously, and he's more concerned with temporary things than with eternal things. Jacob's fault is his trickery. He refuses to offer hospitality to Esau without something in return. This is not good brotherly conduct in the eyes of God. And Jacob is taking advantage of Esau's short-sightedness, his weakness for his own benefit. Well, we're going to fast forward a few years now and we're going to fast forward to chapter 26, verse 34. Verse 34, when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and also Basemath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Remember again what Jonathan preached last week. Abraham did not want his son to marry any of the Canaanite women. He needed to marry within the family someone who would not follow idols, but would trust in the one true God. And so that's why we saw last week that Abraham went out of his way to help Isaac find the right woman. But here we have Esau marrying not one, but two women from the land of Canaan. And this causes much grief for Isaac and Rebekah. As firstborn and successor of Abraham and Isaac, Esau is failing so badly. He's already sold his birthright, and now he's not taking seriously the importance of marrying someone on the same page with God's plans. But I do need to point out here again that Esau is not the only one at fault. Abraham, he made sure that Isaac found the right wife, but Isaac doesn't seem to have done anything to help Esau. He's left Esau to figure it out for himself. And look at who Esau has chosen. Isaac has failed him as a father. Let's move on to chapter 27. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. Here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Isaac is nearing his death, so he has to pass on his blessing to the successor of his family, the one who will be the leader, protecting and providing for the family and guiding them in the ways of God. And Isaac is still going to go ahead and bless Esau, even though Esau has despised his birthright. He doesn't even want the responsibility. But clearly, he'll take the blessing. He'll take the double portion. Isaac just wants more of that tasty food, and he's making the wrong decision choosing Esau for the blessing. Especially seeing the choices Esau is making with his birthright and also with his marriage choices. Esau is demonstrating no desire to lead the family in the ways of God. And I think the author is intentionally describing Isaac here as having weak eyes because not only is his physical vision weak, his spiritual vision is also weak. Well, Rebecca overhears this conversation and she tells Jacob to bring in two goats from the flock. She's going to prepare a meal for him to bring to Isaac so that he can receive the blessing instead. Rebecca knows from the prophecy 
that Jacob should be the one to receive the blessing. So she takes on this leadership role to make things happen. Verse 11. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, But my brother Esau is a hairy man, while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. Jacob does what Rebekah asks. He dresses up in Esau's clothes. Rebekah covers his hands and his necks with uh, goat skins and gives him the meal that she has prepared. Now, I do have to say, what Rebekah and Jacob are doing here is so problematic. This is deception. This is fraud. This is dishonest. This is not the way things should go, especially in God's holy family. But Isaac has put them in a tough spot, and they make the decision to go down this path. This is a complicated story. I don't like the methods they use. I don't think this is how God wanted all this to go down. But they're humans. They're imperfect beings. And nothing is happening the way that it should here. Well, Jacob brings the meal to Isaac and says that he is Esau, the firstborn. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau? he asked. I am, he replied. Sounds a little like a, a little Red Riding Hood situation going on here. Ooh, what a Jacob-sounding voice you have. Uh, ignore the voice, Dad. Focus on my hairy hands. Hairy hands. Would that really work? Goat skins? That can't feel like human hair at all. How is Esau... I mean, how is Isaac falling for this? This is just ridiculous. Well, Isaac goes ahead with it. He eats the meal, and Jacob moves closer to receive the blessing. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes... He blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness and abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. This blessing is essentially Isaac's last will and testament. This is a declaration that a double portion of the inheritance is going to the recipient and that they are now officially the one to take over the leadership of the family. And there's also a major spiritual component to this. Isaac is declaring by faith that the promise and presence of God is now passed on to Jacob. And this blessing is twofold. It's to be blessed with mastery over the physical world, resulting in physical abundance. And it's also to be blessed with respect to leadership, not just with the family, but also, in Jacob's case, among the nations. Isaac is praying that God will bestow upon Jacob an incredible amount of responsibility. So Jacob has just scammed this massive blessing from Isaac. And Esau comes home not knowing what's going on. He prepares his meal for Isaac, 
And when he presents it to him, Isaac realizes that he has blessed the wrong person. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me! Bless me too, my father! But unfortunately, Isaac can only pass the blessing on to one son. And this is all Isaac can give to him as a result. His father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his his yoke off from your neck. This is not the blessing Esau was hoping to receive that day. These are harsh words from his dad, but it's the truth. His life is upended now, and he will live the rest of his days by the sword, and he will serve his younger brother. Everyone in this story loses. Isaac loses his dignity in getting scammed, and he loses his hope for Esau to be blessed. Esau obviously loses the blessing and the inheritance and the status that he thought he deserved. Esau and Jacob, they lose each other. Esau is filled with anger and bitterness and he vows to kill Jacob. Jacob, even though he's got the blessing now, he doesn't get to enjoy it. He has to flee for his life and stay with his uncle Laban's family. And next week we're going to see how great it was staying with uncle Laban, good old uncle Laban. But the one who loses so much is Rebecca. She's lost her marriage relationship with Isaac, her relationship with Esau, and now she has to send her favorite son, Jacob, away, saying, I'll call you back when things cool down with Esau. Uh, But unfortunately, this never happens. We don't know if Rebecca ever saw Jacob and his family again. There's no happy story of Rebecca welcoming Jacob back to their home. Rebecca's decision to go down this route of deception truly does lead her life to be cursed. So there's a lot that happens in these few chapters, and it's pretty rough to see a family go through this train wreck. There's total dysfunction. Even in the womb, Esau and Jacob are not set up for success. It's really unfortunate because... Under a healthy parenting relationship, this could have been a strong and dynamic family. But the lack of communication and the decision from Isaac and Rebecca to favor favor different sons over each other is just a recipe for disaster. So much of who we are and how we live is shaped by our parents and our families of origins, as I preached on a few weeks ago. There's this one family that I know where... This guy marries a woman who already had a son. And at first, the new father showed a lot of love to his new adopted son. But after the father and mother had their own son together, the father started favoring his biological son over his adopted son. And this, along with a whole host of other issues going on in the family, caused incredible dysfunction. The two brothers were robbed of a healthy relationship together, when the older one became seen as the rebellious son, and the younger one was seen as the good son. 
In this scenario, both boys were set up for failure that actually still profoundly affects them to this day. This is what happens when one child is shown favoritism over another. So now, at this point, I need to address a question that came up for me as I was preparing the sermon, and maybe it's coming up for you as well. And that question is, does God show favoritism? The story of Esau and Jacob clearly shows how favoritism leads to division and dysfunction and family breakdowns. But isn't God participating in that favoritism as well? Why does he choose Jacob to be the one to carry on the covenant and not Esau, the older brother? God seems to be showing favoritism here. And we see it again with God choosing Noah instead of the others, choosing Abraham, choosing David, choosing Mary even to be the mother of Jesus. God selects certain individuals and he gives them special privileges. And it looks like favoritism. But then we read verses like these ones, 2 Chronicles 19.7. Now let the fear of the Lord be on you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or impartiality, or sorry, or partiality or bribery. Deuteronomy 10.17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Romans 2.11. For God does not show favoritism, simply put by Paul. James 2.1, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. And Acts 10.34, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So on the one hand, we have all these verses that say God shows no favoritism. But then on the other hand, we have So many examples where God shows special favor to individuals that he himself has handpicked. How do we reconcile these two things? Well, I want to give you my take on this, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about it on Sunday, if you agree with me or not, or if you have other opinions. This is how I make sense of it all. Number one, God desires to show unconditional love to all people. I think that's where we've got to start. This is who God is. This is his nature. At his being, he is love. Selfless, self-giving, sacrificial, impartial, patient, unconditional love. His love is absolutely available to anyone who wants it. And that leads us to number two. God has given us free will and we're pretty bad with it. Unfortunately, we don't really know what we want And we often exchange the truth and the love of God for a lie. We seek selfish things. We seek to indulge ourselves. And in doing so, we reject God's unconditional love for us. We're given free will. And our tendency is to use it for selfish purposes and not for others. So this is a problem. It's also not just a problem for us. It's also a problem for God because number three. God is leading humanity toward his vision of shalom and rest, rest, but he has to work with our poor choices in order to maintain that free will. And this is the ultimate conundrum for God. He has to work with imperfect fallen creatures in order to fulfill his vision for shalom and rest. And this is where things just fall outside of the realm of our understanding, in my opinion. 
You can read the whole Bible, I can read the whole Bible, and and I can see the roadmap that God has laid out for the salvation of the world. But what isn't clear to me is why God has to go this route. Why does God have to set Israel apart as a chosen nation? Why, you know, what about New Zealand or what about Japan? Why why Israel? Why were they set apart? And, And why is God waiting so long for Jesus to be born, for the Messiah to come? And why are we saving the world through Jesus' death and resurrection? Now, I've done a lot of studying on this, and I can scratch the surface of this. I can give a number of good explanations for what I think is going on. But at the heart of it, I don't think we can, we can really understand why God has to do all these things. We can't understand what is happening outside our physical world that makes this the best plan for salvation. You know, just think about it. We're mortal, three-dimensional creatures. How can we understand what's happening in the eternal, spiritual, omnipotent, all-powerful, perfect world of God? It just doesn't, we can't fathom why this has to happen the way it does. But what there is something that we do know, and that is what I think is the most important. What we do know is that God somehow has the ability to carry out his purposes, even though we're messing things up all the time. And that's, I think, Genesis in a nutshell. Humans screwing up, screwing up, screwing up, and God still choosing to work with us and somehow using us, even in our poor choices and decisions, to carry forth his will and purposes. Our story today, even, is filled with deception, dysfunction, shame, violence, and somehow... God uses these messed up people and their messed up choices to continue carrying out his good and loving plan to save us from ourselves. In a society where the firstborn gets special preferential treatment, God doesn't immediately upset the established order. He works within it to choose the right person to carry on his blessing. In this case, he chooses Jacob over Esau Because he knows Esau doesn't even want to carry the blessings on. And he knows that Jacob will. God is going to slowly expand this from just passing on the blessing to one person to carrying it on by the 12 leaders of Israel. And then among those 12 leaders of Israel, eventually he establishes a whole group of people known as priests. And those will be the ones to pass on the blessing. And then by the time we get to Jesus, everything is set up. The plan is in motion so that all people, whoever wants to, can show love to Christ and he will give them the Holy Spirit and allow anyone to be able to pass on the blessing. Throughout the Bible, we see that God does show favor to select individuals, but consider the people that he does choose. And that's my fourth point. God often shows preferential treatment to the low, the last, the lost, and the least, in order to balance out the inequalities of this world. In the patriarchal society of Abraham's day, look at how often God chooses the lesser son. Jacob instead of Esau, David instead of his older brothers, look at Gideon, Jephthah, or what about the great judge Deborah, or Esther, or Rebecca in our story, all powerful women in a man's world, chosen by God to help further his mission. And speaking of Rebecca, 
I really think that she deserves more prominence in our Christian tradition. You know, God is often referred to throughout the Bible as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But I really think that he should be referred to as the God of Abraham, the God of Rebekah, and the God of Jacob. Because Isaac really does nothing to further the plans of God. And in fact, he seems to be sabotaging it as we see in this story. Rebecca is really the matriarch who acts for the benefit of the family, for the covenant of God, and for the future of God's people. So I actually think we should be referring to God as the God of Abraham, the God of Rebecca, and the God of Jacob from now on. So does anyone want to sign my petition? Please stand up with me on this one. Okay, well, God's preference for the least is amplified even more when we get to Jesus. Look at who he chooses to bless. The Samaritan woman, the tax collectors, uneducated Galilean fishermen, Mary and Elizabeth, Mary Magdalene, the lepers, the demon-possessed, the poor, and the disabled. Well, whether you agree with the organization behind Black Lives Matters or not, I think it's hard to argue with the heart that's going on behind the movement. I think that it's important to elevate a certain group of people when they are being neglected or abused. It's not helpful in my opinion to say all lives matter because that doesn't raise the black lives up who are being pushed down. Pastor Manny Artiega tweeted this to express how Jesus embraced this attitude. Jesus in Luke 15, 100 sheep, but one goes missing. Jesus leaves the 99 and goes after the one, the 99. But what about us? Don't we matter? Of course, the 99 still matter, but they are not the ones in danger. The one is. When Jesus was faced with racism towards the Samaritans, his posture was, Samaritan lives matter. When the disciples tried to push the children aside, Jesus' response was, children's lives matter. When the crowds tried to silence blind Bartimaeus, Jesus cried out, disabled lives matter. And when the Pharisees shamed Jesus for dining with tax collectors and prostitutes, Jesus said, sinners' lives matter. It is not wrong to show special favor to a group who's been neglected or abused for so long. They need special favor to elevate them in society. This is not the same as favoritism. Favoritism depends on parents needing to be gratified by their children. You know, Isaac favored Esau because Esau brought home that tasty venison. And other parents might favor the successful child or the athletic child or the attractive child because the mom or dad gets something back in return. They might get you know, a higher social status. They might get selfish pride. They might be able to transfer their personal dreams onto their kids and live vicariously through them. And along with other things, they, they do these things for these reasons. God is showing favor to the vulnerable and the oppressed, not as favoritism, but he's doing it out of unconditional love. And showing favor in this way actually leads all of us to God's vision of shalom for the rest of of humanity. So as we come to the close of this sermon, I want to invite you to reflect on your life and your past. Have you been wounded by someone in leadership, 
playing favorites. You know, it might have been your parents, might have been a teacher or a coach or an employer. You might have been the favorite or someone else in your group might have been the favorite. Either way, you would have been harmed somehow in the process. Just like Jacob and Esau, just like the two brothers that I shared about. If you've been wounded by favoritism, Jesus is taking the posture with you that your life matters. His love for you is unconditional, and he wants to heal you of your wounds. If this isn't your story, or if you have been healed of these wounds, I invite you to consider those around you. Are there people around you who have been affected by the wounds of favoritism? Who can you stand beside and speak the words of Jesus to them that their lives matter? Who can you advocate for and publicly speak up for? And don't forget to check yourself. Are there people in your life that you are favoring over, uh, favoring over others for your own gain? As we all know, God's desire for this world, for us as a human race, for us individually and corporately, God's desire is shalom and rest. And we have an opportunity to join him in sharing the unconditional love of Jesus with those around us who need it most. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much that you've given us free will. I thank you so much that you've entrusted us with so much responsibility because we can grow up, we can learn, we can be changed. But God, you and I both know that uh, we're terrible at this. We uh, just can't seem to help making all the wrong decisions. We end up favoring people over others, and we don't even know we're doing it a lot of the time. God, I pray that you would help us examine ourselves and our motives and our attitudes to those around us. Help us, God, to see, are we showing favoritism to those in our lives when really we should be showing unconditional love and when we should be seeking the harmony and benefit of all those around us? But God, I want to especially pray for those listening to the sermon right now who have been deeply hurt by the wounds of favoritism, whether it's from their parents or from a boss or a teacher or a coach or a pastor even. God, some of us have really been hurt bad, whether we were the ones that were the favorite one or whether we were the ones who weren't the favorite one. It's hurt, it's hurt us all in different ways, God. And we need you now more than ever to heal our wounds. Help us, God, by your Holy Spirit to find the healing that we need, to find forgiveness and reconciliation, to find dignity and self-worth. Help us, God, to find our identity in you and in you alone. Help us, God, to find reconciliation with those who have hurt us so bad and with those, that, uh, those relationships that have been hurt as a result of what those leadership people have done to us. God, I pray for, uh, for us as a church and for us as a community and us as individuals as well as we seek those around us who we can lift up and who we can show your favor and your good grace and your unconditional love. God, give us the strength to stand up for the last, the lost, the least. Help us to be your light and love to those around us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
We'll go with God's blessing this week. Look forward to seeing you on Sunday at the Zoom meeting. And uh, hopefully this uh, sermon has spoke something to you. And look forward to discussing that with you on Sunday. Blessings. Thank you.